0: church for being so loving uh, to your family through all of this. Start the sermon off on a little strange note this morning. What do you think of when you hear the term French Laundry? <laughs> French Laundry. Some of you are going to think uh, dirty trousers, I don't know. Uh, some of you are going to think, oh, I know that place, that's a, it's a three-star, super fancy restaurant up in the Napa area, but... Probably some of you are also gonna immediately think of a scandal that made headlines in November of 2020. Uh, It seems like a lifetime away from from today, but in 2020, we were in the throes of a lot of confusion in our nation about what was going on with this COVID virus. And Governor Gavin Newsom had just strongly advised Californians to not travel to visit with their family during the Thanksgiving holiday. The motivation for that was that there was great fear, that household-to-household interactions would promote the spread of COVID-19 and would cause great outbreaks all over the state. And then just two hours after the press conference where that statement was released, photos of Governor Newsom attending a birthday party that same week with 12 of his friends at the famed Napa restaurant went viral, indicating that while isolation was a safe bet for most people, Gavin considered himself an exception to that rule. Now, in infallible human systems, infallible human systems, systems that were made by the limited wisdom of men, that were put into place by people who make mistakes, the rules that we invent are not divine rules. Human laws aren't necessarily backed by God and can always be replaced with something better or more fitting for the situation. So it's pretty reasonable to expect that there will always be a way to work around the system. And it isn't just the elite who like to think that they can be exempted from man-made rules. I've noticed recently in the city of Antioch where we have a, a great dearth of police officers right now. We only have 30 officers on a duty at a given time in our city of over 110,000 people. That's 30,000 uh, or that's uh, not very many police officers. I can't do the math, right? <laughs> I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. But in this this city, crime has risen to such a degree that I've personally witnessed people just pull up to a red light, look both ways, go right through it, don't even care. And the frequency of these kind of, well, we used to have to follow these rules, but no one's going to slap me on the wrist anymore, so I'm just going to do it, has gone up in a noticeable and measurable way. And the logic behind that is this. Those laws are for good reasons but I'm in a hurry, and I have very important things to do, so I don't need to follow those laws. I will judge for myself what is best for my actions, and and so people make up excuses and exemptions for themselves every day. But when it comes to God's righteousness, we should expect nothing less than perfect justice from Him and perfect wisdom in the way that He distributes the law to His people. When God establishes justice, He's not just doing the best that He can with what He has been given. He has perfect knowledge of all things. He has perfect power to make things operate as He desires. And so His law, as opposed to man-made law, is flawless. It does not need to change, and it can apply universally to all that He has made. No exemptions, no loopholes, No workarounds, no back-alley deals. And why is this relevant, friends? Because Paul, in the book of Romans, is about to engage in a very detailed discussion about the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to understand every man's need for this good news. He will soon describe what the gospel is, but must begin by establishing why the gospel is even necessary in the first place. And so we're in Romans chapter 1, and I hope that as I begin this morning by reading these words that you will follow along in your Bible, and you will watch and make sure I'm not making this stuff up. Romans chapter 1. Today we're going to examine just a few verses, verses 18 through verse 20. This is God's word. For the wrath of God So they are without excuse. Please bow with me for a moment as we thank the Lord for these words and ask for the wisdom to understand them and apply them rightly. God, we praise you. For you are a God of impeccable instruction and we confess today our weakness as limited human beings that we need to be instructed. And that might sting us a little bit to hear that or to say it out loud, but we are misguided without your help. And so, Lord, please overcome our tendency, our our natural desire to just guide ourselves. Father, show us where we need to go. Show us what we need to do. Show us what type of things we're thinking that need to be rejected and thrown to the side and replaced with the things that you have revealed in your word. We pray, God, that these verses from Romans chapter 1 will really help us to establish an understanding of why it is so urgent for Paul that his friends in Rome, in the church there, understand not only the gospel and its content, but the urgency of the gospel and why we need it so badly. And so help us, God, to rejoice in the words you provide, which will continue to be a faithful testimony to what your church needs until your return and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul first teaches us about the wrath of God in these verses. And so let's make a couple of observations here about the wrath of God. First of all, the wrath of God is real. There is wrath in God. It exists. Though many in today's world would rather envision a God who is all love and all tolerance and no judgment, that idea of God isn't compatible with what God has revealed about himself in his holy word. God has wrath. God, by his very nature, is good, and that's why he has wrath. The idea that there is good and bad means that not all things are equally the same, right? If there is good, that means there is bad. And since God is good and is not what is bad, then there is opposition to bad on the side of good. God being good must be opposed to what is bad. People sometimes get the wrong impression. They might be tempted to believe that the wrath of God isn't something we need to worry about because they don't see evil immediately struck down by God's justice. This is not because God doesn't have wrath against sin. It is because he also desires to show a degree of mercy to those who are wicked and deserve his wrath. We are in a a historical kind of waiting period of sorts whereby our guilt is very real before the Lord God. We have broken the law of God. We have earned punishment from God. But God is, for a time, circling around His judgment and his wrath has been put on pause to a degree. And in the interim, God is setting aside a portion of humanity to receive a unique expression of his justice, the fulfillment of justice on his own son Jesus in order to set sinners free for God's glory. So God has not forgotten about justice and he has not stopped being angry at sin. But because he wants to display his glory to us in a very unique way, he is waiting patiently and will judge sin at the proper time. But in the meantime, there is a grace and a mercy that allows him to work in such a way that those who should be crushed under the thumb of God are instead redeemed by that same hand. They are brought near to him. They are loved by the hand of God. They are shown mercy and grace. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9-10, through the Apostle Peter writes these words. He says, The Lord is not slow... To fulfill his promise, namely his promise to return and judge the heavens and the earth is what Peter's talking about here. He says, As some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, when the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it Will be exposed. So, Peter wants to make sure we don't make the mistake of thinking just because there seems to be a a grace period right now that God has forgotten to have anger against sin. God hates what is wicked as we should. Should we be complicit with murder in the world? No, we should hate that people take the lives of others. Should we be complicit with, with manipulation and wide scale deception? that corrupts societies? No, we shouldn't. We should be angry at that. We should desire the truth. There should be in us a a righteous anger towards what is wicked and, and evil, what is opposed to God. And be assured, friends, that there is an anger in the Lord towards this wickedness that would corrupt the world that He has made true. But I want to point out two errors that people tend to make when thinking about the wrath of God. First error the wrathful God is ancient history. They put the wrath of God far in the past. Only in the Old Testament did God exercise wrath. I mean, I've read the book of Joshua. I've seen the Israelites making their way into the Holy Land and doing war against whole groups of people. And so, yeah, that, that version of God was wrathful, but we don't see that anymore. This new and improved God is what is insinuated doesn't have, he's graduated out of that wrath. He got it out of his system. So some people will put the wrath of God way in the past and they'll say, yeah, it's there, but we won't really preach a whole lot about that. We just really stick to the New Testament. We, we stick to the God of, of grace. But then again, we don't preach Revelation either, which is in the New Testament because there's a lot of wrath in the book of Revelation and come to think of it, doesn't Paul tell us again and again that the churches need to repent of their sin and trust it? Okay, so as you're seeing here, there's a, there's a conflict. When you just put the wrath of God in the past, you have to close your eyes to so much of who God really is. He's not a weak God. He is a God of strength. He's a God of truth. He is a champion God who will fight against that which is wrong. So we can't put the wrath of God in the past as if it is ancient history. And others, they say, well, yeah, there's some stuff in Revelation, but that's all in the future future God's going to bring some wrath. But right now we don't have to deal with that. We don't have to deal with present God. Present God now is graceful and he's kind and he's peaceable and he just accepts everybody in. But friends, that's not the true representation of God either. Paul exposes both of these errors when he says that the wrath of God is revealed. Notice that word there. What tense is that verb in? It's not in the past tense. He doesn't say God used to reveal His wrath, and it's not in the future tense. It doesn't say He will one day reveal His wrath, although we will see more of it in time. But what he says here is very interesting. He says that the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, right now. Paul's statement here cannot only apply to the final judgment, though that is the most thorough and terrifying of the manifestations of God's wrath. It is true that God's wrath will be fully unleashed on wickedness in an act of final and complete judgment. We can't deny that. And much in the scripture points us to believe that. So let me just share a few verses with you that, that give us that idea. It's not just something we pluck out of the air or desire that man has, it's what God has shown us about himself. Isaiah 13, 9 through 13 says, Behold, the day of the Lord, which always points forward, almost always points forward to that final day of judgment, the day of the Lord comes, cruel. With wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their consolations will not give their light, the sun will be dark in its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. This is clearly talking about a cataclysm on a scale we have not ever witnessed here on earth. Verse 11 I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Can you see how final that kind of wrath is? That the world will be shaken out of its place. All the fundamental things that, that mark each day for us are falling apart in this picture. That there, the sun will not give its light. All the things that we we. Depend upon for sustained life here will be undone. So the wrath of God there clearly points to a, a cataclysmic event, a, a time-changing event at the end of time, where God will, once and for all, bring an end to the sin that opposes Him. First Corinthians four, five verses four through five says, "When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is presence, is, is present with the power of our Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan, a man among them who is sinful and was living unrepentantly. He says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's Paul talking about there in 1 Corinthians? There's a man who is unrepentant and acts as though he can get away with his sin without trusting in the Lord for (laughs) salvation. And they're saying, put him out of the church so that his heart will be broken and he will return and repent. Because if he doesn't, Then it'll show he doesn't belong to the Lord. And then in the day of the Lord, when God's wrath is finally and fully revealed, there will be no hope for that one. So he's saying, have mercy on him of a severe nature. Put him out of the church. Wake him up or else his sin is going to ruin him forever. So there, Paul points to that final expression of of God's wrath upon creation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brother, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that day of final wrath, will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and there is security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Having gone through five pregnancies, I know how quickly that could come. Uh, We had to make a couple of really fast trips to the hospital when those labor pains came. So what Jesus is saying here, or what uh, Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians, is that the return of the Lord to judge the world is not going to be something everyone's going to see coming. It's not going to be something that we can all chart our schedules for the next five years and figure out when it's going to happen. It's going to come when he decides, and it's going to catch a lot of the world off guard. But mark his words here, it's going to happen. No appeals process. No stalling the legal system of God. God will not put up with evil forever. But according to what Paul is saying here in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed to us now as well. It is not a hypothetical. It is not a far-off event only. It is now. Turn and repent now, for the wrath of God is upon all the ungodly, and we cannot deny it. So let's spend a moment to meditate on what that means, that the wrath of God is revealed in this present, this present tense. What well, is revealed now in his promises. And you might think, well, that's future tense, right? In a way, but think about this. If you know anything about God, if you have watched the way he has worked throughout history, we call that historical theology, then you have seen that God does what he says he's going to do. So when God makes a promise about something, it's almost as if it has already happened because it is so sure that it will come to pass. So when we read the promises of God like we just did from those three passages, Isaiah and, um, and 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, when we read passages like that, it should stir us up in a sense to, to realize that things need to be done about this sin. We, we have to seek the Lord God for redemption because it's on its way. So there should be a present grief for the sin that man commits and a present urgency to share the gospel of Jesus with those who do not yet know him for that wrath is coming and it can come in any moment. Secondly, it is present in the sense that it is being revealed even now in the fact that God is allowing sin to run its course and produce its terrible consequences. We're talking about practical consequences of sin here. This happens in the lives of the people who rebel against God's law. Even believers experience this to some degree, Right? We do know first, uh, the first verse of Romans 8 tells us that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the Lord. Praise God for that. I am, I'm not going to be punished forever in the wrath of God when it happens because I trust in Christ. But if I sin now, as my freedom as a Christian is to sin or to not sin, if I sin, then the natural consequences of those sins are going to play out in my life. I will regret that sin not because I'm going to be separated from my God forever, but because sin hurts. It hurts me. It hurts the name of Christ. And so I ought not sin because sin has wicked consequence. That's part of the reason why God keeps us away from sin, because he loves us, and he doesn't want us to hurt ourselves with our sin. He's not, he's not intent to put a whole bunch of oppressive rules upon his people that keep us from good joy and from good love and good, from, from good peace. He says, no, these are my commandments I give them to you as your father because I don't want to see my kids running around in the street getting hit by cars. I don't want to see my kids doing stuff that brings dishonor to this family and ultimately hurts them. So the consequences of sin will play out and we see then the wrath of God as he allows sin to do what it does in the lives of those who ignore his law. And a third way that it is being played out is through death, through death. Sickness, natural disaster. These events in the material world are the wages of, the consequences of, our rebellion, which started in the garden with the very first man and woman. Because Adam and Eve fell, all of creation, which was under the dominion of Adam and Eve, all of creation was impacted negatively by that rebellion. And so where there was not death before, now death reigns in creation. And so we see the wrath of God when people pass away. We see the wrath of God when earth shakes and buildings topple. We see the wrath of God when, when we have to endure terrible sickness. We see that not necessarily as a direct consequence of our sin, but because of the general consequences of sin on creation. And so the wrath of God is, is, is peeking through those moments when we hurt, when we have to suffer we have to remember that we have done this to creation. We have done this to ourselves. And God is allowing in his sovereignty for us to experience a little bit of the taste of that wrath through the natural consequences of our sin. Uh, we have to remember that there is great grace in God, that he doesn't let us nearly experience uh, uh, as much as we deserve to experience from this. How many times has, have we deserved to go to jail for something and, and he, he gave us grace? We wanted to do something terrible, and he kept us back from it with our conscience. How many times have we made a a grave mistake and gotten hurt, but we could have died, and he said, nope, and he held us back, and so we have a scar from it, we have a limp from it, but God was merciful. So God is constantly holding back his people from the full wrath um, that will come in the last days, but we do get to see bits and pieces of it. Even today, the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense. So we learn here from Paul that the wrath of God is revealed. And who is this wrath revealed to? Now the answer to that question is extremely important to Paul because it has a large hand in shaping every aspect of his ministry and his preaching. Paul explains it to us in no uncertain terms. He says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Against all. You see, Paul is committed with his mission heart to making sure the message is heard and understood by both Jewish people and Gentiles. We've talked already in previous Sunday mornings about how there was a special calling upon Paul to preach to the Gentile, but he wants to make sure here that we understand he wants both the Jews and the Gentiles saved. In the next three chapters of Romans, Paul's going to go to great lengths to help us to understand that the curse and the impact of sin is universally applied to all of mankind, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. So let me give you a preview of that just really quickly. We're going to get into these verses in more depth as weeks unfold before us, but just to see how it applies to what's being said here about the wrath of God. Romans 2.9 says, There will be tribulation and distress for who? For every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. So, in case every wasn't clear enough, every human being, he goes on to say, that means you Jews, and it also means you who are not Jews, every people group. There will be tribulation and distress. So the wrath of God will bring this, this heartache, not only to the covenant-breaker-breaking Israelites, but to every human being who does evil. And that covers everyone without exception. For both Jews and Gentiles, yes, people from every race and ethnicity struggle with the sin. Uh, that is being spoken of here. They break the law of God. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Do you see the grand language that Paul is using here? He wants to make sure that no one feels exempt from this important message, that we all understand that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is the only solution universally for the, 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 the sickness of sin. Romans 3.20 For by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So no one, not the Jew who had been exposed to the law by covenant nor the Gentile who is oblivious to the law being born outside of the original political boundaries of Israel will find a way back to righteousness by keeping the law. None of us can. The law doesn't give us a framework to overcome our sin. It gives us a framework to understand the extent of our guilt because of our sin. So by the declaration of the law, we are shown how rebellious we really are. And we may just see how clearly we need a Savior, Lord willing. So the wrath of God is revealed. And it is revealed to be a threat to all kinds of men. Paul manages here to lay, the, uh, lay to rest two potential arguments that he has likely already seen come up in the course of his own missionary work. Remember, Paul has been constantly on the move, starting new churches, establishing elder leadership in those areas, giving them enough doctrine and understanding that he can move on and begin a new work. And then he writes letters back to these churches to make sure they're staying on track and to correct any errors they have. But in the course of this mission work that he's doing, no doubt he has heard almost every opposition to the message of the gospel. And I'm I'm sure that two of those oppositions are being addressed here in how thorough he's being when he speaks about the wrath of God being all sinners. He says, When faced with the grim reality of judgment, the Israelite, the one that he reaches out to who has a Jewish background, is likely to argue to Paul that by virtue of being one of God's chosen people, that Jew is no, no longer under condemnation from God. He's been called into covenant relationship with God and so any description of the wicked or the unrighteous must only apply to the Gentile who does not have the law. That's probably a very common mindset of the Jewish person back in the day that the earliest church was being established. But Paul makes it clear here. As the many Old Testament prophets were famous for making clear, even a Jew who breaks the law is subject to God's wrath. Your status as citizen of the kingdom of Israel as a member of one of the 12 tribes, does not exempt you from God's wrath against sin. <clears throat> the testimony of John the Baptist in the book of Matthew will reinforce this. We read in verses 8 through 10 of Matthew 3, John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to a group of Sadducees and Pharisees who had gathered to hear him preach while he's baptizing in the Jordan. says, Do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this goes back, I think, to the Gavin Newsom illustration, where mankind always wants to make an exemption for themselves, Right? And so Paul has encountered Jews whom he preached Christ to and said, here is your Messiah. You have been waiting for him. His name is Christ Jesus. And he went to the cross to die for your sins. He's a sacrificial lamb for you. And they said, we don't need a sacrificial lamb. Who do you think you're talking to? We're Jews. We have a covenant connection with Yahweh already. We're in the clear. And yet Paul is saying, you're not in the clear like you think you are. Because look at your life. You still, through rebellion, break the law of God. Don't think that just because you're related somehow to Abraham, that gets you off the hook. John the Baptist says, the axe is being laid to the root of the tree. There were many who thought they were of Israel, but they had no love for the Lord God. There was not a true repentance in them. And so they did not actually represent the people of God. So that's one counter argument that Paul has to deal with, and he's trying to expose by showing the universal wrath of God being applied to all men. The second opposition that he faces is from the Gentile. The Gentile who is likely to argue when they hear about this Jewish Messiah who has come to die for people's sins, that since they have not officially been given the law as Gentiles, they were never brought into covenant under Moses, that God can't expect them to live in accountability to the law. They can't be tried for these laws. They're not Jewish. They don't have that background. They didn't even know they were breaking the law. He may think himself exempt from the wrath of God because God didn't make his law clear enough to those Gentiles. Now, let's logically break that down for a minute. February 2nd of 2022, a women's NBA player by the name of Brittany Greiner was detained while traveling to Russia to play for a team there in the offseason. Russia has very strict drug laws, especially when it comes to travel by air, uh, including prohibitions on cannabis and marijuana products. And Mrs. Greiner had some vape pens with cannabis oil in them which, while quite legal in the United States of America, is a punishable offense in Russia. The fact that she did not know that that was a law in Russia didn't keep the Russian officials from arresting her, putting her on trial, and sentencing her to nine years in a Russian prison. Nine years. There was a great international outcry because of this. After 294 days in a Russian prison, The White House finally arranged a prisoner exchange. They gave up a Russian arms dealer by the name of Victor Bout in order to secure Brittany Griner back to the United States. Not knowing the law of a land does not exempt you from the consequences of breaking those laws, does it? And if everything belongs to the Lord, then his law applies to you. There is no sanctuary you can go where the law of God does not apply. Are you an Israelite? Then you're subject to the righteous wrath of God. Are you a Gentile? Then you're subject to the righteous wrath of God. And here's the evidence that Paul uses to tear down, specifically the second argument for his heart and his mission is primarily upon the Gentiles. The second argument made by those who are not Jews who would claim that God hasn't shown himself or his laws clearly enough He expands upon his argument here in verse 19. He tells us that what can be known about God is plain to ungodly and unrighteous men. It is plain to us. Does that mean that everything can be known about God? No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. There is no way for any finite mind, whether lost or found, to know everything about God. God is far above and beyond us. We would be fools to think that somehow we could... captivated our minds the vast wonder of who God truly is but make no mistake about it more than any other creature on earth man has been given the capacity to know some significant things about God so far as we can tell no other creature is clamoring to know their creator I love my dog but I don't suspect she's really any kind of theologically aware has any kind of theological awareness whatsoever she's very aware whenever I cook anything in my house she's like right there is a hot dog going to fall on the ground? Is the little one around? Give the little one food. She drops all the food. That's, that's what my dog is aware of, right? But my dog has no idea that there is a, a God in the heavens as far as I can tell. Man, however, being made in the image of God and being given a, a mental capacity beyond the other created things, does have the faculties and the information at his disposal to know much about the nature and the character of God. He cannot know all there is to know about God. It would be an insult to a perfect and infinite God for us to act as though we can master him and know him in his entirety. But it would be an even greater insult, I believe, to act as though we cannot know anything concrete about who God is or what he desires for us, especially considering he has gone to such great lengths to reveal himself to us. And so Paul tells us the method by which God reveals ample evidence of his existence and influence. God does this through his creation through his creation, through the things that he has brought into existence. Not the only way that he does it. He does it in another way called his special revelation, his holy word. But Paul's focused right now on showing us that he reveals himself, God reveals himself, through the things that he has made. Think about the words that flow off the psalmist's tongue in Psalm 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims, His handiwork, day to day, meaning the progression of time, pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Keep that on the screen for just a minute. Notice that here the psalmist describes the creation as if the things that God has made is preaching some kind of great visual sermon as if its very existence is a kind of sensory testimony of the existence and the glory of God. The heavens and the vast expanse of the sky declare, I am made by an impressive and mighty God. I am the product of a divine will. As the sun moves in its course and time passes, bringing with it each new day, we're given statement after statement that God is good and steady, that he is reliable, that it is he who sets the world in motion. The sermon of creation is heard by all. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. You see that? So this is not just what a select few can witness. The natural revelation of God is something that every one of our senses, sight, sound, touch, smell, and taste, all of it bears bears testimony to the reality that something great made all of this. There isn't anywhere that this natural sermon is not heard. It echoes throughout the earth, to the ends of the earth. Paul gives some brief details describing what the creation reveals to us about God. First, he gives us a general statement and then two specific ones. Here's the general statement. His invisible attributes are revealed. His invisible attributes are revealed. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if they're invisible, then why does seeing nature reveal them to us? And the answer to that is quite simple. Because God himself is a spirit. He is not himself visible in a material way. He doesn't have a conventional body like we do. So he cannot just step out of the shadows and say, here I am. But God knows how we process information as human beings. He created us. He designed us. He programmed us. And so he shows us evidence of himself in the quality and the complexity of the things that he has made. They are the visible fruit, the product of his attributes. The evidence that points to God being real and gives us clues about what he is like. So these invisible qualities that we can't see with our eyes, we can see the offshoot of those qualities in the things that God has made. And then Paul goes on to list two specific things that are revealed in the things that God has created. There are clearly more than just these two, but Paul only mentions these two at this point. They are sufficient for his argument. He says he has revealed his eternal power. His ability to create on such a grand scale with such depth and such wonder cries out to us that there is a God. Have you ever had the blessing of laying your eyes on the Grand Canyon before? What is so impressive about a great big hole in the ground, you might think, right? Well, over the expanse of its 277-mile length, the Grand Canyon averages a depth of 4,000 feet. How many of you have ever struggled to dig a two-foot post hole before? Okay, it's misery, right? Especially in some of the clay earth around here. 4,000 feet deep on average. And at some points, the Grand Canyon is over a mile deep, friends. Up to 18 miles wide, this gigantic interruption in the landscape. So steep are the walls that it would take many lifetimes of fortune and effort in order to even begin to accomplish such a thing if men was to try to duplicate the task. And yet when you strap your family into the minivan and you drive eastward towards Arizona, you will eventually run into the undeniable evidence that God brought this about. And he did it by simply saying a word. It will take your breath away to stand on the edge of that precipice I recommend you watch your little ones while you're there. Be very careful. And if that doesn't take your breath away, if that doesn't make you think, okay, uh, this isn't just an accident, then you could point your minivan in the other direction and you could drive out towards the west, towards the ocean. And when you finally get there and you kick your shoes off and you stick your toes in the sand and you look out on that that vast blue-green ocean and all you see is that monochrome water and a slightly curved line that establishes the horizon. But at the same time, you become acutely aware of the fact that below the surface of that water, colossal, colossal amount of water, are several complex interwoven ecosystems, all teeming with amazing life, churning and pulsing in a sort of ecological dance of harmony it has the power to make you feel incredibly small when you stand there on the edge of that ocean. From sharks, to whales, to shrimp, to plankton, to squid, to rays, to coral, mammals that have to swim to the surface throughout the day to fill their lungs with air and yet will never set foot on land. So much complexity and interdependency and all that comes from where? From chance, from the roll of the dice over and over again, From a cosmic game of organic roulette? Impossible. Impossible, I say. Randomness does not produce ever increasing complexity and beauty. Planning does, design does. So gaze upon what the hand of God has made and stop. Stop trying to make up excuses or explanations as to how this might have gotten here that exclude the idea of an almighty hand saying, exist. God is real. And the things that you see around you proclaim the excellency of his creative power. Not convinced by the sea, are you? Then turn your eyes skyward and gaze at the stars, so numerous that we cannot even begin to count them. A giant burning sun around which our planet and seven or eight others, I don't know, my grade school education has betrayed me. I guess Pluto's not a planet anymore. (laughs) Seven or eight others are constantly revolving around this sun, one that is so perfectly placed away from us that it cannot provide warmth, or it can provide warmth that is needed to foster life, but can do so without burning us up to a crisp or pumping us so much full of radiation that we are constantly morphing into weird new mutant animals. When we meditate upon the heavens, we see the complexity of a universe that hides millions of secrets, but even the ones that we have been privy to see are incredibly telling of the ordered and intentional structure that needs to exist in order for life to thrive. God shows himself to us by his creation. We see his power. We see his power. And the second detail that's mentioned here by Paul is that we see his divine nature. We see his divine nature. When a person creates art, friends, it is often a reflection of what is going on inside of that individual. Their character, who they are, leaks out in what they create and what they imagine and then bring into reality. A depressed person you're going to see darker tones in their art. The art might seem labored or twisted or, 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 or difficult to enjoy. The, the beauty might be on the fringes of the art. Whereas someone who's in love, who goes to create art, who's experiencing the abounding joy of having a partner that they can care for, their art might be characterized by the light and the love and the, and, and the lightness of being accepted and cared for. What a person creates often tells us something about who they are. And in God's case, his creation reflects some of the aspects of his divine nature. Not perfectly, but in a reflective sense. We see all around us order. And God tells the church in 2 Corinthians 14 that he is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. And when you look at the way a flower head creates a concentric and geometric shape that is perfectly the same from flower to flower to flower to flower. You think to yourself, I don't think this is accidental. I don't, I don't think this is just random. I, I think that somebody with an idea and a plan put this together. We see the order of God in his creation. We see dominion. We see that there are levels of leadership and authority all throughout the creation. Even in the first chapter of Genesis, we see that, Light and dark is made and then what does God create? He creates a sun to govern the day and a moon to govern the night. We see reverberations of the fact that God has authority and dominion over what he has created. It even echoes throughout the things that he has made. We see intention, we see purpose, we see beauty. So many of the things that are richly enjoyable about God are reflected in this creation that he has made. There's a doctrine that we hold to called the perpiscuity of Scripture. You've probably heard me say that once or twice before and then promptly forgot the term. Uh, Perpiscuity is an ironically complicated way of saying something very simple. It means that we believe that the Scriptures of God can be adequately understood by even the simplest of people. That it's not so complicated that you have to have some degree to know about salvation and your need to be near the Lord. The, The Word of God is not for the geniuses. It's for everyone. I'm grateful for that because I'm not one of the geniuses. I would also suggest that when it comes to natural revelation, that there is a perspicuity to that as well. You don't have to be a biologist. You don't have to hold any advanced degrees to see the evidence yourself. The created world is so magnificent that it had to be put together. It had to be put into place by a being so powerful and so wise that his ability and character clearly outclasses anything that man could hope to offer. The creation testifies to even the simplest of us that there is a God. And so you may have heard me mention this before. I I don't believe in atheists. An atheist is someone who claims that they do not believe in God. They do not see the evidence of the existence of a transcendent being who is somehow responsible for the wonders of the universe. And I have to respectfully disagree. I trust what God says through Paul here in Romans 1 that every man and woman who can in any way experience and observe what God has made, knows somewhere deep down inside of themselves. It might be hidden really deep, but they know in their heart of hearts that there is a God out there. They might not like that truth. They might be very, very much so invested in convincing themselves that it is not true, but I believe they know it. And for the sake of their souls, I would urge those who describe themselves as atheists, to humbly consider the natural evidence that there is, in fact, a transcendent being responsible not only for the creation of the world, but also for its purification through justice, through his wrath. God has a vested interest in purging his beautiful creation of the sin that man has brought into it. And he will ultimately do that by the fire of judgment. Now, the gospel The gospel is not delivered to us by natural revelation. We see evidence of God existing, of his mighty hand in creation. A nature outing is not in and of itself an evangelistic outreach, though. We are hoping to get some guys and gals together to go and share the gospel. On the campus of Los Mendanos High School, we want to engage the students there and try to see if some people would be open to talking about Christ with us. But our strategy is not to go to Los Mendanos and get a bunch of students there and drive them out to a forest or show them some pictures of the ocean. We want to declare the truth of the gospel as it is revealed in Scripture, in the second book of Revelation, which is the Word of God. Nature is the first kind of revelation. It shows us that God exists and that He created. The Word of God is where we really begin to see who He is and what His will is for mankind. Nature is a powerful sign pointing to the power and the divine nature of God, and it has been ever since the creation of the world this kind of testimony to us. The evidence of God's existence expressed through all he has made presents such a convincing argument to anyone who is willing to honestly look and see that Paul tells us that mankind is without excuse. The plainness of the revelation of Jesus means that man cannot try to argue his innocence on the grounds that he just didn't know any better. When human beings stand before God, even those human beings who did not grow up in a Christian home, even those human beings who did not grow up in a culture where the gospel was clearly on display all around them, the guilt of rebellion that they will stand trial for cannot be erased by some kind of plea that they were ignorant of the truth. Man knows of and is accountable to the Creator God. Now this reality has tremendous implications for the mission of the church, namely in the way that we evangelize. Let us think through this and draw some conclusions, okay? The Apostle Paul states it plainly. There is no excuse. All the evidence we need to at least acknowledge not only the existence of God, but also His power and divinity are right in front of our eyes. So if we are without excuse, action needs to be taken if there were an excuse, if we could argue that we are innocent because we just didn't have enough data to evaluate the situation and draw solid, good conclusions, then we would have essentially, we would have to say that there are two different means of overcoming sin and and being saved. One mean would be the first means, which is the gospel. Go out and preach the gospel for those who've come to know their sin and know their guilt, preach the gospel to them, and the gospel hopefully will take root in their heart and they will repent and God will take a hold of them and make them his own and there will be a washing, a cleansing of their sin and they will become a part of the church. Divine intervention on the hand of God, his perfect person, his victorious work will win the day. But if we were not without excuse, if we could claim innocence by ignorance, I'm not guilty because I didn't know enough to be held accountable, Then there would logically flow a second path to salvation, wouldn't there? If the non hearer is safe so long as she never hears, wouldn't her ignorance then be a saving grace to her? Would it not be a sound missionary strategy then to absolutely try to eliminate the gospel from the face of the earth? Then everyone would be saved, right? Would we not then be forced to think of Satan's efforts to stop the spread of the gospel? as a kind of missions work? Don't you see how twisted this becomes? If you reject what Paul has plainly said here, that man is without excuse? If the non-hearer is safe, then we must totally rethink our missions, endeavors, and and, and plans. This is not so far-fetched, friends, as from time to time you're going to find someone within Christendom who argues that those who do not know of the gospel cannot be held responsible for rejecting it. Those people who are in that that tribe in in the farthest reach of Africa who've not heard the gospel at all, when they die, they say they're going to go right to heaven because they're innocent. They don't know that they need Jesus Christ. But if this were the case, we would need to draw some simple and yet deadly logical conclusions that would have to flow from that truth. The gospel only condemns once it's preached and heard with comprehension. If that's the case, then we have to see the gospel as dangerous and we have to limit it. And of course, the scripture says that's the exact opposite of what the church is supposed to be doing. The gospel is our light. It is our peace and hope. It is our joy. And if we have anything to give the world, church, it's the gospel. No matter how much it, it makes it hard for us to see our sin, the gospel is the only means by which we might build our house upon the rock of Christ. But if you believe that there's a second way, you're also incapable of believing that original sin had to any anyway be connected in a meaningful way to the guilt of man. You're going to have to deny several important doctrines that Paul is going to take time to develop in just a couple short chapters. If I am only condemnable if I know of God and reject Him, then His law is really only relevant to those who have heard and can have no eternal bearing on those who have not. And We know that's not the case. So if man is without excuse, as Paul declares he is, without excuse, then we must preach the gospel, friends. And we must preach it to everyone. We cannot assure ourselves that the ignorant will be exempt from judgment because they don't know any better. We must go. If there's a place in Africa that hasn't heard the gospel, we better get there. We better start giving. We better start collecting an offering and training up some men to go and start some churches in that place because without the gospel, they are doomed. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they, the lost, to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Do you see the the increasing urgency of what Paul says in that verse in chapter 10 of Romans? That we must send preachers. The gospel has got to resound in the world if we're going to save people from their sin. And that's why we're so stubbornly committed to preaching the gospel of Christ, every opportunity that he gives us as a church. Ignorance is not only an intellectual matter. We have to acknowledge that ignorance is a battle of a spiritual kind. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-6 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy, as he describes these strongholds, listen to what he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Notice that Paul describes the opposition that presses hard against the knowledge of God as arguments and lofty opinions. And while human intellect is often raised up as the ultimate judge of what is good and bad, it is a humbling reality that even our own intellect is affected by original sin in such a way that we cannot fully trust our own ability to look at the raw data that we see around ourselves in the world and make faithful sense about what it reveals of God. We've got to be careful that we don't put our logic Above the revelation of God. We have such a capacity to not only deceive ourselves, but also to selectively act as though we do not see key pieces of information that our scientific, quote-unquote, evaluation of the world cannot be assumed to be objective and honest. Original sin operates in some ways like an autoimmune disease, but for the soul. God has built defense mechanisms into your body, your physical body, to protect it against foreign threats that might infect that body and weaken it. And an autoimmune disease is a physiological problem whereby those very faculties that God has gifted you with to protect you become confused and deceived through sickness, and their power to fight off foreign threats are then tragically redirected to assault the very body that they are supposed to defend. And in a similar way, the mind, the intellect that God has given you to understand Him, often thinks corrupt and wrong things about God and undermines your ability to have faith in Him. The heart that God gave to you to love Him and to value Him as God begins to work in a self destructive way at times to love as God what is not actually God. The logical progression of this kind of breakdown shouldn't be hard for us to anticipate. When the very mind and heart that should be our defense against lies and false doctrine becomes themselves corrupt, it leads to two very dangerous outcomes. We reject the God that is right in front of our face, but that is not the end of it. We are designed by God to be worshippers, right? And so the rejection of God does not completely undo all of that programming that is within our hearts and minds. We continue to operate in worshipful ways. However, the second negative consequence of this autoimmune disease of the soul is that we begin to embrace as God that which is not God. We begin to worship idols. The act of giving unholy worship to anything that is not God and therefore does not deserve worship is idolatry. And so that is where Paul is going to take us next Sunday. That's going to begin to come into greater focus for Paul's argument as he picks up steam in helping us to understand why we need this gospel and why not only do we need it, but everyone in the world needs it. We're going to see how rejecting the presence and the existence of God grows into a corrupt exchange where Paul describes men choosing to select for himself lesser things upon which he will put his efforts in worship. And so the Apostle Paul will continue to fortify our hearts and give us strength against these errors so that we might rejoice.